Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 16. We're so glad that you are here today and do pray that uh, most, if not all of you, can uh, stay for our church picnic to follow. Uh, it'll be a great time of fellowship together. Again, 2 Samuel 16, it's on page 249 in your pew Bible. The title of today's sermon is Power Grab, Part 2, In the Presence of My Enemies. Um, if you are uh, joining us for the first time, you might feel like you're jumping right into the middle of a movie. Uh, sometimes you're like, what's the plot here? I'm not following. I don't understand what the scene is about. I'll try to bring you up to speed as best I can. You consider this a little bit of a review um, if you have been with us. Uh, David, uh, as the uh, golden standard of the kings of Israel, uh, was described by God himself as a man after God's own heart. But as we have seen throughout the course of David's life, while he had many high points, there were definitely some low points. And we saw that apart from the Lord, even a man after God's own heart can fall into some serious sin, which David did in the earlier chapters of 2 Samuel. He lusted after his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery with her. And then in an attempt to cover up his crime, he killed her husband. He orchestrated his death on the battlefield. Uh, God confronted David through his friend, the prophet Nathan, and uh, David rightly confessed his sin. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He made no excuses. He laid out himself before the Lord, and he said whatever God thought was just in terms of the consequences, that he would receive that knowing that God is always good and right and fair. And so the Lord, in his grace, took away David's sin. David not, did not die on the spot for his sin. David would not pay the eternal penalty for his sin because of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come a thousand years later and give his life for sinners like David and for sinners like me and you. But sin carries consequences in this life. And the Lord told David that while he would receive immediate forgiveness for his sin, that there would be serious consequences to follow because he had despised the word of the Lord. The child that would be born to David and Bathsheba as a result of adultery would die. And for years to come, David's own family would be characterized by bloodshed and violence. And we've seen how some of that took place. And the most recent event now is that Absalom, his own son, has uh, brought about a conspiracy against David. He has claimed himself to be king. Absalom is now on the move and David is on the run. Uh, Absalom has been plotting for four years to subvert his father's leadership. Absalom has stolen away the hearts of the men of Israel, pretending to be their friend. He has employed political tactics of all kinds, politics that we see even at work today, in order to steal people's hearts, to deceive their minds, so that he can gain a groundswell of support. After Absalom announces that he is now king in the distant city of Hebron, David now escapes Jerusalem and is on the run, literally fleeing for his life with the rest of his household and with the men who have remained faithful to him. So David is on the run, Absalom is on the move, and as David flees Jerusalem with his household and a contingent of uh, faithful soldiers who have been loyal to him as the rightful king, we saw in chapter 15 last week that David um, encounters um, three different encounters with friends. Uh, David, along the way, is encouraged by friends that God sends his way. Uh, the first friend that he encountered was Ittai the Gittite. Then he came across Zadok and Abiathar the priest. And then he came across Hushai, his counselor, who was referred to in chapter 15 as David's friend. 
Now as we come to chapter 16, David has encounters with three enemies. Some of them are more subtle than others, but this shows us that as we are in the darkest seasons of our lives, God not only sustains us as faithful friends come alongside of us, but God also sustains us even in the presence of our enemies. And that's where we are now in chapter 16. Each enemy that David encounters in this chapter are the kinds of enemies that we face today. They are the same kinds of enemies that our Lord Jesus faced during his earthly ministry. And Christians can be comforted to know that God uses even our enemies to accomplish his good purposes for us. If there's one thing I pray with all my heart that you'll take away from this chapter, it is this. When you are in the worst season of your life, when everything and everyone seems to be coming against you, know that the Lord uses even our enemies to work out his good purposes in our lives. It's hard to see that when we're in the midst of the storm. (laughs) Were any of you caught in that storm yesterday? I I was driving on 104 and I had the windshield wipers going full blast and it was all I could do just to to see at all what was in front of me. Um, I saw uh, emergency vehicles uh, coming from the other side. There must have been five or six of them, uh, cars that had crashed and hydroplaned. And I thought, you know, how much that relates to life sometimes. When, when things are just getting, uh, become battering against us, it, it's hard to see our way clear at all. And yet God's word is meant to be a compass as a guide through that storm. And that's what I hope God's word will be to you today. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant to guide us as we go through storms of life. So with that in mind, let's look at the type of enemies that David encountered. First of all, there was Ziba, who represents the ready opportunist. Look at verses 1 to 4 of 2 Samuel 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. You might be thinking, Pastor Matt, I thought you were talking about enemies that David is encountering. And and Ziba looks like he's a true friend. And indeed, I would agree with you that at first glance, it looks like Ziba is David's friend. And Mephibosheth, the grandson of King Saul, the lame son of Jonathan, has really become David's enemy. But if you were to cheat a little bit and read ahead in chapter 19, you will see that once David does return to Jerusalem, and Mephibosheth comes to him, Mephibosheth's account of what happened is markedly different from what Ziba here tells David. And uh, everything we know about Mephibosheth and subtle clues that appear in this text regarding Ziba show that Ziba, in all likelihood, is lying through his teeth. Let me walk you through it. He appears to be generous, but I submit to you that Ziba is nothing more than a ready opportunist 
who will exploit circumstances in order to gain an immediate advantage for himself with no consideration of ethical principles in the midst of this circumstance. Ziba brings David a load of provisions. And the king says to Ziba, why have you brought these? Literally, in the Hebrew text, it should be translated, what are you doing with these things? I think David is asking, do these really belong to you? Uh, do you have, is it your right to be bringing these things to me? Um, after all, in verse 1, the narrator introduces Ziba as whom? He introduces him as the servant of Mephibosheth. Back in chapter 9, Ziba was appointed by David to look after the property that he had given to Mephibosheth, the lame grandson of Saul. Had Ziba run off with Mephibosheth's stuff? Mephibosheth seemed to be extremely grateful to David for the grace that he had shown him back in chapter 9. Had he really turned his back on him? Or had Ziba run off with his stuff? Interestingly, Ziba doesn't answer David's question directly. But he simply tells David what the supplies are for. The donkeys are for your family members to ride on. The, 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 the fruit and the loaves of bread are for your men to eat. And the wine is for those who become weary along the way. Well, upon hearing Ziba's reply, David asks another question. And where is your master's son? Back in chapter 9, Ziba is called a servant of the house of Saul. And so Saul's son could refer to Jonathan or to any descendant of his. So here it would refer to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. It's interesting that David never asked Mephibosheth to give up his role of serving the household of Saul. He told him to look after Saul's lame grandson, Mephibosheth, and his property so that he would be cared for for his remaining days. David's follow-up question may be his way of asking, so where is the son of your master? Where is the owner of all this stuff that you're so generously giving us? Ziba takes this opportunity to throw Mephibosheth under the bus. He stayed in Jerusalem and said, now we'll get back the kingdom of my grandfather Saul. Now I want you to think about this for just a second because in the time, someone just looked at me with furrowed eyebrows wondering, that doesn't make sense. And you'd be absolutely right because the groundswell is not for the house of Saul. The groundswell is for support for King Absalom. And surely King Absalom will treat uh, Mephibosheth no better than King David. So this doesn't make sense if you stop to think about it. David should have pressed Ziba further. But I want you to understand where David is at. It's late into the night. He has had to hurry up and leave Jerusalem with his household and with the soldiers that have been faithful to him, probably taking very little provisions and belongings. He's absolutely exhausted physically and emotionally from the journey thus far. He has just ascended the summit of the Mount of Olives and is now going over the overside. He's been barefoot. He's been weeping as he climbed up the mountain. I think if any of us were in that sort of a situation, and maybe in our own way we have been, there are times you're just not thinking straight. You can't even process something. My brother went to um, Israel um, a couple of weeks ago, or returned a couple of weeks ago, and he said the first few days back, and he actually had a good time. It wasn't like emotionally exhausted or anything like that, but just the rigors of the trip. He was saying for the first two days at work, as, as people would ask me a question, I would just find myself sitting there 
for like 30 seconds trying to process what they just said. And that's when you've just been through a busy season or suffering jet lag. Can you imagine if you had been through the turmoil that David had been through and was still in? I don't think David is thinking straight here, and he's already asked a couple questions. He can't make any sense of this. All he knows is that Ziba has brought some much-needed supplies and provisions, and he's heard this about Mephibosheth. And you know what? So many other people have turned against me, people that I would have trusted, people that I thought were with me. You know what? Fine. Thank you, Ziba. Now all that was Mephibosheth is yours. And yet... Something else goes on. He gets duped by Ziba's ploy. And then we find out in chapter 19 that after giving David the provisions, Ziba didn't continue to travel with David. Ziba went back to Jerusalem. This guy is so good. He's so, I don't mean in a moral sense, I mean he's clever. Right? So he ingratiates himself to David by giving provisions, making himself look good, probably thinking that David may well survive this crisis. So if he comes back as king, I'll have Mephibosheth's property, I'll look really good, and I'll be all set for life. But should Absalom win, and David ends up dying, he ends up being removed from the throne, Absalom is king, Ziba's there in Jerusalem to welcome the new king. Absalom would have never known that he went after David. So Ziba is using these circumstances in such a way that he's manipulating them so that they can benefit himself no matter what the turnout. But here's what I want us to see in light of the main truth. Even though Ziba's motives and methods were sinful, God still providentially used those provisions to meet David's need and the needs of his family and the needs of his men. Likewise, the Lord can use people in our lives who pretend to be our friends, but only for the sake of gaining some advantage, of deriving some benefit from us. Like David, we too can be duped by people's kindness, generosity, and encouragement. And the thing is, God does not want us to live in a spirit of skepticism or cynicism where we're always questioning somebody's motives for doing something kind for us. That would be sin on our part. The Bible says that love believes the best about others and we cannot look on people's heart and we are, not, we are actually commanded not to judge their motives. But know this, that there will be people in your life to show you kindness in order to gain some sort of advantage from you either in the moment or later on down the road. And here's the thing, leave that with the Lord. You can't judge their heart. Sometimes we don't know who those people are, and they, quite frankly, can sometimes easily dupe us, especially when we're going through a trial. But know that God can use even their sinful motives and methods to meet a real need of ours when we're going through dark times. God is sovereign over people's sin. God is not the author of sin. He never tempts people to sin. God cannot sin. But He is sovereign over sin, and uses even the perceived kindnesses of others to serve his genuinely good purposes for us. So that should be our approach to the ready opportunist. Next we come to Shimei, the relentless critic. Look at verses 5 to 8 of 2 Samuel 16. When King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, 
And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom of into the kingdom, into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. Well, there's no question where this guy stood. I mean, it's not like, uh, please, don't beat around the bush, Shimei. Tell us what you really think about David. No, we have people like that in our lives too. People that are quick to criticize us. People that are quick to insult us. People that are quick to cuss us out and relentlessly so. Shimei was a wicked man who uh, unjustly assaulted David both physically and verbally. His vile words were backed with violent actions. His assault began when David reached Bahurim. Uh, uh, one and a half miles northeast of Jerusalem. So this would have been as David had gone up the summit of the Mount of Olives, crossed the summit to the other side, and a little ways further, that's where the village of Behurim was located. If that sounds familiar to you, you might recall that earlier in the life of David, uh, Behurim is where uh, Paltiel, uh, Michael's husband, uh, wept as he followed her when Abner was taking Michael back to her first husband, David. And it says that Paul Tio wept all along the way until Abner told him at Behurim, go back to Jerusalem, which he did. Always felt really sorry for the guy. And, and if you read that account, you'll see what I mean. But here we want to note that Behurim becomes a place of weeping once again as David is really put through the ringer by this wicked man, Shimei. The journey was made all the more difficult due to Shimei's relentless criticism and cursing of David, throwing stones at David. I thought as I read about that, we've heard that expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Would you agree that's a total lie? How many times in our lives have words been so destructive and damaging, we would have gladly have taken a hit by stones and sticks and other objects because words have a way of sticking with us for a long, long time. They can be especially hurtful. And I think that was true in this case, not only because they were such wicked and vile words filled with cursing and criticism, but because deep in his heart, David knew there was a little measure of truth to them. No, David was not guilty for the bloodshed of the house of Saul. In fact, if you're aware at the beginning of 2 Samuel, when, when, when the kingship comes to David and you understand how Saul died, you know that David had absolutely nothing to do with that. I think the narrator goes through great pains to show us that's the case because David refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He had nothing to do with Saul's death. He left it completely in the Lord's hands. So Shimei is 100% wrong in making this accusation against David. But David had shed blood unjustly, hadn't he? David was guilty of shedding the blood of his faithful soldier, Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. David was guilty of that bloodshed. And you might remember as we read the account of David having adultery with Bathsheba and how he uh, orchestrated the murder of her husband Uriah. We probably thought even as we read that chapter, David is acting like a worthless man. 
You might remember that we even said in our observation of that text that in that moment Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Uh, He was not highly esteemed in any of our eyes as we witnessed his horrific crimes. And so David knew that while Shimei was wrong in what he was saying in terms of bloodshed regarding the house of Saul and that David being a worthless man in the ultimate sense, it did remind David of the horrendous sin that he had committed. So Shimei was wrong to think of David that way. As he yelled, get out, get out, that's exactly what David was doing. He was getting out of Jerusalem. He calls David a worthless man, and that's how David felt, certainly after he had committed those horrific crimes. Shimei's assault was relentless. He continues to hurl criticisms and curses and rocks at David and his men. At one point, David's nephew, Abishai, had had enough. We read in verse 9, Then Abishai said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. Sometimes deep down inside, you kind of like to have a friend like that, don't you? <laughs> Let me go take his head off. And, and Abishai, you know, says this is an easy solution because headless people don't criticize. <laughs> headless people don't curse. Headless people don't use their mouths in that way. And with Shimei, it was a very straightforward answer. That would definitely solve the problem. But look at David's response, verses 10 to 14. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Zeruiah was David's sister. Um, Her sons were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel is already dead by this point. You might remember that from earlier. I won't go into that, but he's dead. And this indicates that Joab, who was still with David, was probably now joining with his brother, saying, yeah, let's go cut off his head. He says, David says, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, or he, this could read, the Lord will look on my affliction. And the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Oh boy, this relentless assault made David's journey all the more difficult. But David saw God's hand in this. When David said, leave him alone, let him curse for the Lord has told him to, David wasn't suggesting that God had verbally told Shimei to curse David. Remember, God's not the author of sin. He doesn't command people to sin. He doesn't incite people to sin. What David is saying that though Shimei is fully responsible for his vile words, Though Shimei is 100% responsible for his violent actions and for the hatred and bitterness in his heart, God was still sovereign over that sin and would use it for a good purpose in David's life. I thought of David's confession in Psalm 51 after Nathan had confronted him about having adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. Do you remember what David prayed? Here's a, a brief paraphrase so that you get the context. David's confession in Psalm 51 includes this prayer to the Lord. 
You are the one I have sinned against, and you have seen it all, the full extent of my sin. You have all the facts before you, O God. Whatever you decide to do with me is fair. By allowing this attack to continue, this is David's way of simply bowing beneath the Lord's discipline. The Lord has allowed this for a purpose. I am reminded of my sin, even though his accusation is wrong. I have been a man of bloodshed. I have acted as a worthless man. And nobody knows this more than God. David was assured of immediate forgiveness at the time he confessed his sin, but he was told of the ongoing consequences of his sin. And he saw Absalom's revolt and Shimei's cursing as part of the Lord's discipline in his life. And so David was content to leave the matter in the Lord's hands, saying, maybe God will see my affliction and exchange his curses, meaning Shimei's curses, for something good. You know, David's response reveals a lot about his perspective of God, doesn't it? It says a lot about David's view of God, even when he was under the Lord's discipline. I love what Dale Davis writes on this section, and I want to read his quote to you at length. I trust you'll listen carefully. Dale Davis writes, David has a deep-seated confidence in a God of unguessable grace, who has a tendency to replace cursing with goodness. How can he even dream this unless he actually knows a God like that? Oh, you just can't imagine how deep and warm and longing God's compassion is for you, even when he disciplines you for your sin. But David would try to understand because he knew this God. What an instinct for God. What a holy hunch. Should this word not come as a special hope to Christians, who at some point, perhaps with open eyes, have smashed God's commandments and defied his standards and then suffered miserably for it? repentance and forgiveness have come and yet they are sure that god only regards them with grudging toleration and sometimes they even question the toleration they are they think because of their sin doomed to the junkyard of christian existence but what if they could get a glimpse of david's god what if they have a god who can look at guilt and return good Shimei is the man who curses, but David has told us that Yahweh is the God who may reverse the curse. And in fact, he has. Galatians 3.13, that's the end of the quote. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he became a curse for us. And by becoming a curse for us, for all who would believe in him as their Savior, he also dissolved the curse for us. The curse that rightfully should have been upon us because of our numerous transgressions against God's law. Because Christ became a curse for us and because he dissolved the curse for us, Paul can then write in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He's not saying there that people aren't against us. He's saying if God is the almighty being, the righteous judge, who has the right to curse us, has freed us, and has forgiven us, and he is the almighty God who keeps us, what does it matter who the enemy is who comes against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the point is, it doesn't matter who's against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is even interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul gives the answer, which is meant, is meant to be a rhetorical question. The answer is no one can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in all creation, Paul says, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, may that comfort us when people unjustly criticize you, curse you, even when they do it maybe justly on some occasions, not meaning that they're right, but there's some truth in what they're saying. We can find our full freedom, forgiveness, worth, our identity, and blessing in Jesus Christ. But there's one more enemy that opposed David, and this was perhaps the most hurtful enemy of all. We read about him in the previous chapter. For as David went up the Mount of Olives barefoot and weeping as he went, verse 31, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so we come to Ahithophel, the ruthless traitor. So far we've looked at Ziba, the ready opportunist. We've considered Shimei, the relentless critic. And now we encounter Ahithophel, the ruthless traitor. Look at verses 15 to 23 of 2 Samuel 16. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and all the hands of those who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Boy, a lot packed into these verses. Let me just go over a couple of things. Amidst this tsunami of treachery and conspiracy, in the eye of the storm stands David's true friend, Hushai. Remember when David went up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, and was told that Ahithophel was among the conspirators? David prayed to the Lord, O Lord, 
turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And right after that prayer, David encounters Hushai, his friend. David saw Hushai as God's answer to his prayer. And David tells Hushai, you would actually be a better help to me if you did not stay with me, but went back to Jerusalem and worked against Absalom's schemes. And so that's what Hushai is doing here. But if you look carefully at the exchange between him and Absalom, there's some double speak going on. Uh, Absalom comes into Jerusalem, and before he can even say anything to Hushai, Hushai says, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom, in his arrogance, is convinced that Hushai is talking about him, but whose life is Hushai committed to sparing? Not Absalom's, but to David. So even as he sings, uh, says, long live the king to Absalom, he is working like crazy to save the life of the true king, God's anointed king, David. When Absalom asks Hushai, why didn't you go with your friend? Hushai replies, hey, as I have served your father, so I will serve you. But the Hebrew literally says, as I have served in your father's presence, so now I will serve before your presence. So Hushai, yes, he will be serving in Absalom's presence, but he will not be serving Absalom's interests. Hushai is going to be going to work for David. He was truly David's friend. But not so Ahithophel. When Absalom asked Ahithophel, what should we do now? He says, have sex with your father's concubines. And so Absalom pitches a tent on the palace roof. Oh, does that remind us? It's the same roof where David had first gazed upon Bathsheba, which led to his string of crimes. And it was there on that same roof that Absalom pitches a tent and has sex with his concubines, with David's concubines, in broad daylight. And everyone in Israel heard about it. John Woodhouse, in his commentary, writes, quote, It is difficult to imagine anything more calculated to offend, disrespect, and hurt David than Ahithophel's cool, cold-blooded would be more accurate counsel that Absalom have sex with each of his father's concubines. It was not simply that such an act would be understood as a claim to David's throne. Absalom had already claimed to be king. It was the father-son relationship that made the advice in this case particularly crude. It involved what God's law called uncovering his father's nakedness. It was an irreversible act of the utmost provocation comparable even to rape. End quote. Make no mistake, friends. Ahithophel's advice to Absalom was heinous, it was reprehensible, it was diabolical, and it was inexcusable, as was Absalom's follow-through on such advice. And yet, behind this heinous advice and act was the sovereign hand of God achieving his purpose in David's life, fulfilling his word to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So Ahithophel and Absalom were both fully responsible for their heinous 
words, their heinous acts, their heinous plots. But God was sovereign over it all. And he used their heinous acts and words to fulfill God's word to David. All this to say, God means what he says. And this means that God always makes good on his word. So whether it is a word of judgment or a word of promise, you can trust God to keep his word. The same God who fulfilled his word of judgment upon David is the same God who would fulfill his word of promise to David as recorded in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise was initially fulfilled in David's son Absalom as we or son Solomon as we will see in several weeks. But it was ultimately fulfilled in David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose adoptive father, Joseph, we know from Luke 2, was of the house and lineage of David. Last week we noted that Ahithophel's betrayal prompted David's words in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We said last week that this the traitor's conduct through this imagery is, is pictured as a vicious horse that violently kicks his own master. And Jesus quoted this very scripture in response to Judas's betrayal. That's one reason we had uh, Cody read John 13 earlier in the service where this quote appears. Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9 when he is betrayed by Judas. And then Jesus says, the scripture will be fulfilled. And so we understand that Ahithophel's betrayal of David foreshadowed the ultimate betrayal of Judas against Jesus. And yet remember the transformative truth of today's text. God uses even our enemies to fulfill his good purposes for us. Did you pick up when we read John 13 what Jesus said immediately after he said that Judas would betray him? And after Judas went out, Jesus said, now is the Son of God glorified. Judas just goes out to betray him. Jesus knows not only that Judas would betray him, but Jesus knew that this would set in motion God's good purposes for Christ himself and for us. Judas's betrayal of Jesus led to his crucifixion, which was followed by his resurrection, which was followed by Jesus' ascension and glorification at the right hand of the Father, and it was followed by the salvation of millions and even billions of people who would trust in him as their Savior. You see, not only do we encounter these three types of enemies, here's the reason we need the gospel, because at one time or another, we have been these three kinds of enemies. You and I have. Like Zeba, we have ingratiated ourselves to others only to derive some benefit from that relationship. We have even attempted to manipulate God, saying, if I do this, then God will do that. Like Shimei, our hearts can be, and forgive the expression, but this is what came to mind, like a clogged toilet that is so stopped up with hatred and bitterness that we just spew vile words out of our mouth. We're filled with cursing and criticizing and slander and we insult other people or we gossip behind their backs. 
In his New Testament later, James declares, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Oh, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. And yet so many times it is. And like Ahithophel, we can be fickle in our relationship with God and others, marked by self-interest rather than steadfast love. Sadly, we can even be like Judas, who had everyone fooled for years, outwardly committed to Jesus, but inwardly craving money, power, and prestige. Jesus isn't the end. Jesus is the means to what I really want. And when Jesus didn't deliver the goods, Judas delivered Jesus up. And people do the same thing today. I wonder as we wrap up our study of 2 Samuel 16, and there's so much more that could have been said, I wonder how the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart today. Is He convicting you? Is He comforting you? If you're like me, you might be experiencing a measure of both. Because we are all sinners, and we have all been sinned against. We are both sinners and sufferers in this fallen world. But that's why Jesus came to this fallen world. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And that's why we need the Lord. Whether we're dealing with our own sins or we're withstanding the sinful attacks of others, our soul finds rest in God alone. For God is the only one who can graciously pre prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we enter into this time of reflection, singing this next hymn that fits in so wonderfully with the text of your word today, and as we enter into our participation of the Lord's Supper, our celebration of what Jesus accomplished for us, Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to be at work in each of our hearts. Don't let us be thinking about anything that's coming after the service or later this afternoon. Help us not to think of this time as the beginning of the end of our worship gathering. Help us to enjoy these next few moments for all their worth. For in the bread and in the cup, we are reminded of who you are and what you did for us. And I pray this would be the sweetest moment of our gathering today. In Jesus' name, amen.